Welcome to the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com or also on BitChute and YouTube, a speaking podcast. I also have Learn Polish Podcast, The Awakening Podcast, and The Meditation Podcast, and all can be found on RoyCollin.com. Today, my guest, co-founder and CEO of FreshBooks. And you might think that's a book you can pick up and smell, but it's not. But I will leave Mike McDermott to explain that. So welcome to the hey, show. Roy. Thanks, Ray. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, is that, that where we start? I'll go ahead and explain this. Is that? Yeah, you, you can just introduce yourself to the audience. That's the way I like, uh, you know, that's my, the way, my style. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. I, um, I am indeed uh, one of the founders of FreshBooks. And I, uh, what, what FreshBooks is, is it's, it, it is not a physical book. It, it's small business accounting software that's uh, hosted in the cloud, available on your mobile device, your browser. So it's wherever you need to be, uh, so long as you have an internet connection. And um, yeah, it, it's a really, it's a really, the idea is we, we built accounting software, not for accountants, but for small business owners. And in particular, small business owners who, uh, you know, are get paid for their services, time and expertise, that kind of thing. So we don't really do restaurants, we don't do retail, but that lets us keep a simple product. And and uh, yeah, we've got over over 20 million people who use the software since we started. We've got paying customers in over 100 countries around the world. We're a global business based out of, uh, founded in Toronto, Canada, but now with offices in, in five countries around the world. Very nice. Excellent. And uh, like I've seen some of your videos of you speaking, but I always like to know your journey before you were kind of competent on stage, your, you know, from youth, let's say. Well, let's, uh, let's give you some, some of the, the, the real stories here. So I, um, I will go ahead and say there are some people who are natural public speakers and storytellers, and I'm not one of them. <laughs> this is a learned, learned skill for me. And, you know, to the extent I can bore you with it, I remember in grade six, we did a, uh, a, section on public speaking and um, the teacher gave out topics and I um, he did a dry run in this case of one of the topics and I was handed that topic so he gave an example of how to talk about this topic he did a really nice job of it everyone else had a different topic but everyone thought it was a shoe-in the topic was uh, why is the sky blue or something like this or the sky is blue anyways I got up there and um I basically just went blank. It was complete stage fright. I really didn't have a game plan. I didn't know how to structure a talk. Uh, and uh, it was very embarrassing. And, um, you know, it was kind of your your perfect, perfect storm, you know, public speaking event. Um, then as I got a little older, I, I didn't have many public speaking opportunities. But when we started FreshBooks, I, I, I got involved with a community. Uh, it was called Demo Camp in Toronto. And you'd pres- people would present on an ongoing basis. Companies tell people about what they're doing. And you had six minutes. And, um, you know, the second major failing of my public speaking, I had started to kind of ramp up the curve and get better at it. But at that one, I just, I completely blew it. And uh, lo- lost the audience, disenfranchised them, got questions I didn't want, had intentionally kind of tried to avoid and, um, you know, really off the stage with the, my tail between the legs, feeling like, oh, I just, I set my company because this is like the company was, you know, nobody would want to work for this guy after that talk. But frankly, that experience, uh, the first one wasn't, you know, so much a learning experience, but the second one really was. And um, it, it was, I, I don't think I would have progressed at the rate I did if I didn't just get in front of people and fall on my face. <laughs> so, so that is, uh, and now I feel, you know, quite comfortable talking about topics with which I know something about. Um, and that's, uh, that's mostly 
what I am uh, responsible for doing as a as an executive in a, in a software company. And I you know because like some people don't realize as well that like the public speaking is kind of in-house as well. It's okay when there's only three of you in a garage or in the basement in your case, but when it gets a bit bigger, you kind of have to, you know, get your message across as well and not, you know, you have to change your style, you know, because if you're in a friendly relationship with a lot of people, you know, you might talk us through that because obviously you've experienced that as well, because sometimes you have to be serious and get this kind of friendliness out of the boardroom. I think there are a few uh, dynamics and dimensions to it. So, so one of them is, yes, you're always speaking to the person who knows you least well and um, knows nothing about the topic. And if you can remember those two things and make sure you bring everyone along, it's, not, it's easier said than done. It, 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 it's a hard thing. And so, yes, stylistically you need to change. I, I will also say I am, um, I, I, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm probably a creative person. And therefore, I would say nonlinear in my thinking. And a big job for me with public speaking has always been to just slow down and methodically rule things out for people so they can they can follow along. And then what I really try to do, and so most, of, most but not all of my public speaking, but a lot of it is inside the building. And so another huge job in all this is actually inspiring people to want to be part of a company, to be clear on where we're going. And so you have these embedded objectives. And so, yes, the style, the way you do things, the way you roll out concepts and move from one to the next becomes very important. Having a nice cadence, taking pauses. We can get into all this stuff where I don't know where we're going to go here with all the discussion. But but the point is, uh, I think the punchline for all of that for me is, I have had the great fortune to have many opportunities to speak publicly because of the nature of my role. And uh, th- that's been a great help. And I've, you know, I've been getting better over the years and there's still a long way to go. And like when you are doing a speech now, I mean, it, obviously when you're talking about something, you know, it's a lot easier, but how are you structuring? If you have a 10 minutes, I don't know how long the different speeches, because obviously you're going to different events and you're speaking at events, but how do you structure or, you know, prepare your speeches these days? I mean, it's not like when you were talking about the sky in the school days where you kind of went blank, them days are gone. You don't, you don't get away with that anymore. <laughs> no, you don't get away with that anymore. So, you know, I, one of my first questions is always, how long do you want the talk to be? because, you know, I can do it in one minute, I can do it in 10 minutes, I can do it in an hour, you tell me which one you want. Um, and, and so that is that is the first thing. And it really, it does matter, but it doesn't change too much what it is you're going to do in terms of the structure. And I think, you know, one of the most helpful turning points for me in my public speaking career is, is the structure. And I think anyone can take the structure, and then I have some particular things I like to do inside it. Um, but, you know, the structure is, you know, tell people what you're going to tell them, you know, go ahead and tell them and then tell them what you told them uh, effectively. That's, uh, and, and you've probably heard that before on the show. Um, and I might have even missed a step there. But effectively, yeah, I just like to intro- well, I introduce myself and set context, tell people what we're going to cover. So they almost have the punchline at the start. And then I'll take them to one, two or three things that build them from where they are today back up to that point. And then I'll go ahead and say, look, we just covered all this. And so now you know the thing I told you at the start. And then, you know, we're done. And so if you can do those things, that pattern seems to work pretty darn well. I think I stole it from Colin Powell. He, <laughs> he mentioned it one time and I was like, oh, that's the answer. And I found it to be incredibly helpful uh, if you can do those things. Brilliant. And like, 
you know, you've built a very large company and, you know, um, from early days when, you know, you had a couple of customers at the end of the day, it's, you know, speaking, communicating with clients, you know, what have you learned? Because, you know, at the early days, I think you mentioned you had like 10, 10 customers, you know, so you were basically investing time and sweat, you know, not getting the, the money to even cover your bills. But you've you obviously learned the journey from taking it to the next level. So you might share with us some of the tips that you've come across. Sure, sure. So let me go ahead and, and talk a little bit about the, the public speaking engagements that I have, because there's, there's all kinds of communicating and building a company. And, you know, most of them, frankly, are not public speaking. But let's focus on public speaking. So in the context of public speaking, the things that I would be responsible for doing would be all staff meetings. Really, the big ones are all staff meetings, what I'll call weekly company meetings that are sort of optional for people. And then um, conferences and public events where you're telling the story of the company, you're trying to get the word out and have people, you know, come away with a positive, um, you know, a, a positive take. You're, you're trying to have a positive take in all of those. But when you have an audience who doesn't know who you are, you're introducing yourself, your company, all the rest of it. It's a, a bit of a higher hurdle for how you uh, go about communicating. And so, um, so those are kind of the three forums that that I've had to communicate. For me. I have a personal, you know, this is not necessarily the best thing, but my approach to all this is um, I generally, let's go with public speaking. No one knows who I am. I generally want to, again, set context for people, but my goal is to take people, I like to leave them with something of value. And what I mean by that is not just be self-promotional and say, hey, look at how great we are. And that's the thing of value they get. And a lot of public speaking turns into that. I'm much more interested in sharing with them something I've learned and a bit of the journey of how I went from wherever I was at the start to where I am now and see if I can bring an audience from one place you know, to another, almost changing, changing their minds or their mindset so they can benefit from some lesson I've learned along the way. And doing so ideally in a way that is sort of inspiring. And, that's, and that kind of leaves them with energy and a leave behind and like a, a thank you. Uh, in their head if I've really done a good job of it. So that's that's what I try to do. And that 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 makes speaking for me have purpose. Um, it's not about promotion. It's about sort of growing the audience in some way. And um, and by virtue of that, people generally, you know, you get the promotion because people are thankful and they feel like you you gave them something. So they want to tell other people about you and what you've done. But that's that that's what what makes it interesting to me. And I, I find that that is a puzzle it's a challenge. Like, how do I do that? You know, first of all, what am I going to speak with? What is relevant to this audience if the audience is the customer? So let's find something valuable. And then how do I take them from place A to place B so they can come along for the ride, you know, see, see what the difference is. There's an inherent assumption there that most of the audience, this will be kind of net new and not old hat for them. And uh, what I have found is that that is, you know, you can find topics or experiences that you've had that help help people go from here to there and they 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 enjoy the experience so so that is uh, you know curating what those choices are it is a part of it but but yeah i like the puzzle then of constructing constructing a talk like what is the arc of the narrative uh, that takes people from place a to place b and leaves them you know in a better place when you're done very good um, 
And yeah, I always believe, you know, you give as much as you can. And there's another thing that you've done as well is you've written a book and I see that you basically, you can download it free. And it, I, I've read it. I read it today. And uh, what is it? Breaking the time barrier. A lot of people will benefit from that, especially if they're kind of, you know, starting off and they're kind of, you know, sole traders on that from the way it's, you know, from the price point. So just, you know, what, what, what was the reasoning behind that? So let's talk about this. So I, um, the, the book, yes, is Breaking the Time Barrier. And the reason Roy was able to read it today is because it takes about 45 minutes to an hour to read. Um, it is one of these books where you might initially say, I don't want any part of it because it's written like a fable. A lot of people don't like a fable, but the book is a little bit, you know, like one of my talks in that the whole purpose of writing the book was to help people um, evolve how they think about pricing the services that they offer to their clients. Uh, a lot of people, you know, struggle with this. I, for years, I've been meeting with customers and a consistent theme for them is how much should I charge? You know, what do I charge my clients? Why is that the right amount? And so the book's express purpose is to help people think about that and evolve their thinking. Um, because most people are frankly doing it, they're doing it in a way that can be done, but it's far from the, the optimal or ideal state. Um, you know, a lot of people bill for their time, a lot of bill for their time plus materials. So, uh, you know, a cost plus model. And most of the time, if you're offering some kind of strategic capability to your clients, which many service-based business owners are doing, uh, sole traders and such, then you really, you, you really want to reframe that whole discussion and think about, hey, how do I partner with this client? How do I help them materially advance and improve their business? Could be cost savings, could be revenue growth. And how do I benefit, you know, almost from like a percentage of that improvement and price my services accordingly. So that's, that's value-based pricing is basically the, the, the pricing model that I, I, I try to help people understand. And, and the book is written like a narrative with um, effectively, in this case, a web designer, but it could be a plumber, it could be anybody going on a journey uh, from not knowing how to price to, to sorting out how to go ahead and price their services uh, based on value so they can earn more and, and demonstrate more benefit to their clients at the same time. And why I bring that up is I think because a lot of people listening might be coaches or, you know, aspiring coaches or speakers. And I think they'll get a lot of benefit from that, the way that it's actually worded. So yeah, it's uh, and the fact that they can get it for nothing. I mean, I know you say forward what you believe it's worth. So, which is a nice way of doing it. I haven't seen that kind of strategy before, but uh, it's a, uh, it's a nice way of doing it. Um, just, I'd, I'd like to delve into you know the the company now because there's a few things that that, that I've written down. Uh, one, because um, there's two co-founders. Yeah, you've got two, the, the, three of us actually. But carry on. Yes. Yeah. So I'm just curious because you know I've said, who decides who's going to be like the president, the CEO? Does that something that you yeah. kind of argued about? And because you know some people will have fights over things like that. Well, I was I was staring at your bookshelf behind you, and I, if you're going to go ahead and build and scale a company, uh, one of the great books to read is is a book called The E Myth by a gentleman named Michael Gerber. And you know, at the kernel of that book, it's also very helpful for co-founders. Um, at the kernel of that book is he effectively lays out one of the big things is hey, you need three three animals or three kind of mindsets to be successful 
One is the entrepreneur, one is the technician, and one is the manager. And you need what I call the three-legged stool. You need all of those um, to build a company because you know the entrepreneur who has the vision is not necessarily the best person at building the product. And the person who's best at building the product is not necessarily the best at kind of managing the company. And, and the person who's managing the company probably you know, may not have the entrepreneurial vision. So, so you need, you know, everybody has these things in them to one degree or another. Uh, they're on the spectrum. They could be a hundredth percentile entrepreneur and you know one percent manager and ten percent technician or some version of that. But the point is, um, our founding team, you know, by happy accident, was an entrepreneur, uh, a technician, and a manager. And so we didn't have to fight too much about this, that, or the other thing. But though we did, we definitely had our knockdown dragouts around stuff, but they were mostly around the product and almost exclusively around the product. And so I was the entrepreneur, marketer, you know, revenue generator in the, the three of us uh, with the vision for the product and, you know, what it should be. And uh, my one co-founder was um, uh, a doctor in computer science. And he and I talked a lot about what the product should be and why and how to approach it. But he was more the, the technician. The third one's our manager kind of running the operations, making sure, you know, people got paid and, and the bills got paid and all, all the rest of that. And so, so I guess, I guess the point is, um, we didn't have to argue about it too much, uh, which was nice. Um, I, I think the other thing is we just ha- I just happened to fall in with two wonderful human beings. Um, and that is so much of you know choosing. Sometimes your founders choose you, sometimes you choose them. But at the end of the day, uh, the, the thing that matters is being involved with people who um, are just good humans. The rest will sort itself out. I like to say you need shared values and alignment to be successful. And um, you know, we really had a, a strong base of shared values. My job was kind of, hey, the aligning on where we're going and why, and everything else really worked out uh, from there. Okay, brilliant. No, I love that. And uh, one that a lot of kind of companies, startups or whatever, they like to have, uh, you know, venture capitalists kind of get involved. I know you have an interesting story on that because you didn't uh, at the start, even though something landed on your laps, you might just let people know your thoughts behind that and what happened. Right. Okay. So, well, long story short, we started the company almost 20 years ago. And it, it was, uh, I, I actually, about six weeks ago, um, after being running the company and being the CEO for almost 20 years, 18, um, I actually passed the baton to a, a gentleman. I'm now the executive chair, which means I'm chair of the board and a member of the executive team, uh, and a, a, a new CEO who's been with us for the past couple of years. Um, in year three is now taking on the role of CEO. And he and I have been partnering together, the two of us, to run the company for the past three years. And now he's going to take on the role of CEO. And I'm, I, I'm not. And so the, um, which is a, a wonderful thing, it just speaks to evolutions in companies over time. Um, so uh, I actually, forgive me, Roy, but I, what was the question again? I, I was leading <laughs> just about, up to answer. Yeah, no, no, but that's interesting as well, because, uh, yeah. you know, just the passing, because yeah. some people, you know, it's like, uh, you know, giving their baby away, they don't want to do that because, you that's know, right. so, you know, that, that that's so venture capital. I'm coming yeah. back to it. Venture capital. Um, you know, it's funny. You think the two topics were related. They're sort of, uh, they're sort of not. So, so for me, the real point there is, hey, 18 years ago, we started this. We started it in Toronto, Canada. Um, in that particular part of the world, well, I'll just go ahead and say venture capital and how it interfaces with companies has changed enormously over the last 20 years. Um, you know, if you rewind it 20 years ago, 
it was really um, a behind the scenes, not well understood by entrepreneurs um, effort where there was such an information imbalance between the entrepreneurs and the venture capitalists that effectively the, the venture capitalists, certainly in my home market of Toronto, but you know, elsewhere in the world, really took advantage of the founders. And they, they just used their unfair knowledge uh, to basically abuse the situation. And what happened, thanks to the internet largely, um, so I think two things, the internet and some new, uh, some new leadership in the venture capital community. So the internet's come along and really changed the information balance. As an entrepreneur, you can go and read about and listen to podcasts and learn all about venture capital, how it works, you know, how to structure deals, what expected terms are, like all these kinds of things that were really sort of hidden uh, prior, to, uh, prior to the internet. And then, uh, so that's one thing that's happened. The other thing that's happened is some of the leading voices in the in the uh, in the venture capital community were themselves successful founders. And I'm thinking, in particular, of uh, a firm that's now based in Silicon Valley called Andreessen Horowitz. And they basically came out and said, "Listen, uh, the most successful companies are founder founder led uh, for a long period of time." And so. Um, so let's get behind the founders as opposed to, hey, let's take advantage of the founder and then put a CEO in to run the company and see what happens. And so the, all of that, all of that has, has sort of gone and changed. And so that was a bit of a backdrop. So to answer your question on venture capital, for me, for the first 10 years of the company, I was very leery <laughs> of venture capital because I, I really, I knew that there was that information imbalance. I knew that I wasn't really appear or an equal in any way to, to investors who what they do all day is invest in companies. And for me, it's like I take an investment, you know, once, maybe twice, three times, it's a very different uh, number of repetitions. And so I, I kind of studied venture capital. And I spent a lot of time on the phone with prospective venture capitalists who wanted to invest in our company. And eventually, I got to a place where I was, I felt like I had enough knowledge. And importantly, I felt like capital was the only thing holding the business back. And thirdly, that I could, if people invested in the company, return their capital to them. I think it's a very important thing. A lot of times people want capital so they can keep their business going and they think that's what it's for. And that is not what it's for. Uh, the purpose of venture capital investing is they're gonna give you a bunch of money so you can give them 10 times as much money back later. And you have to have some way to understand how that's gonna happen. And you know, for me, I spent about 10 years or more actually trying to de-risk that so that I was confident that, okay, if you give me $30 million, which was our first venture capital investment, I can, you know, I can basically get you 300 back. <laughs> uh, that's, you know, that's, which is, you know, sounds, you know, a, a little bit heady, but that's, that's kind of the idea. Okay. And uh, like the culture, because uh, you had uh, your strategy number one in the culture in the company, because that's, you know, like you, you mentioned, because uh, I listened to some of your stories about, you know, just walking past somebody in the corridor and then just to make sure that your strategy stayed there. So you just kind of go into that a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think inside of, you know, building product and raising money and everything else like that, this, this really interesting challenge for me is how do you scale culture? So first of all, you have to decide that culture matters. 
And then it's like, okay, if it matters, how do you foster it and perpetuate it and keep it going? And, and the fact is like most cultures wane or get lost along the way as you add more and more people and, and uh, they, they just struggle and companies change. And very rarely do companies continue to have their sort of spark of greatness as you add more and more people. And so, uh, so, so for me, the kinds of things you're talking about you know, for me, culture is what happens when when nobody's looking, right? You know, behind the scenes, like if you can get that right as a founder or a CEO or a person running a business, if if you can get people behaving in a way that you want them to, when you know you're not in the room, uh, maybe even you know better, ways that are far far better than you yourself could ever be, behave and or, or you know execute or deliver, then then I, I think of that as a huge positive outcome. And so we built a very customer focused culture. Um, where people really want to do the right things by the customer. And, you know, we, you know, like if you call our support team, they're going to do everything for you. You know, it's, there's no guidebook on it. It's like, Hey, use your best judgment to do what's right. And people have a lot of latitude to do what they believe is right for the customer. And I think that is a wonderful thing. I don't have to worry about writing a set of rules for how you need to teach customers when really what you want to do is just have people behave naturally in a way that, that, that serves customers. So, Anyways, that's that's a bit of a bit of a taste for what we've tried to do with culture, why I think it matters. And and then, yeah, as you grow, there are just these things that happen to a company. And so one of them is uh, at 150 people. There's a thing called Dunbar's Law. And as soon as human beings gather in a number greater than 150, um, things just change. The human brain is basically wired for 150. There's all kinds of literature and science around this. And you can go look it up, but um, things change. And so we, you know, we crossed 150 people. And for the first time I was walking down the hallway and, and someone stared at their shoes and didn't sort of look me in the eye. And I was like, oh dear, this is not good, right? That is a, that is a turning point. And you know, forget it being me. I just, I didn't want anyone to have that experience because that's all of a sudden, like, oh, we've got this soulless enterprise right? Like I have to go to work and people are going to walk past me in the hallway and look at their shoes. Like that's, wouldn't you rather be in a place where people, you know, have their head up and look in the eyes and kind of say, hi, you don't have to stop and talk or anything like that, but acknowledging people. And, um, you know, I, you know, I try to do this in life as I walk around the streets and you don't avoid eye contact because you don't want to look at something that's hard or different or whatever it is. Like, you know, be a human, look someone in the eyes and, and carry on. Even if you're just even if you are ultimately just walking past. So, so anyway, so we, we, um, we created a little rule called heads up hello and just set the expectation that listen, we're not gonna, we're not gonna live like this. We wanna keep our heads up, look people in the eye and just say a quick hi. And it was really funny. Like you know, we hit 150 people, first person stared at their shoes. I talked about that once and you know, it's been really good ever since. And we're sort of 500 people and you know, people walk down the hallway with their heads up, say hello, acknowledge. And you know, it just, I think that makes for a much it's a different environment when people behave in that way, in a good way. I think it's brilliant that you kind of nipped it in the bud as soon as you saw it, because sometimes people don't do that. And it's hard to change if it goes, you know, if you were like 400 people and decide, hey, I don't like this, you know, to, be, you know, to do it as, as you witnessed, it was uh, great. And have you just got the one location or are you in uh, a few locations? No, we're in uh, we're in five. We're in Mexico. We're in uh, Amsterdam. We're in Raleigh, North Carolina. We're in Toronto, Canada, and we're in Croatia. So, um, so we're working on these things in various degrees and in all these places. Toronto's the only office over 150 people at this time, and so 
little easier in some of the other places this stuff comes naturally. But, um, you know, fun funnily enough, I'll go ahead and say we're in the midst of, you know, we're a year into the COVID pandemic right now. I haven't been to the office in over a year. Uh, and I'm, you know, I think one of the things that's going to be really interesting is when we go back to test all this stuff out. I'm, you know, I've got my fingers crossed. I'm very hopeful. You know, I've seen how people behave when they're working remotely. FreshBooks still feels like FreshBooks, but it'll, you know, we have a lot of new people. It's going to be very, very interesting to see how it all kind of goes when uh, when we do start going back to offices. And how do you deal with the different cultures then? You know, because I mean, like you're in Europe, Mexico, you know, Canada. How does that work out? I. I think that's right. I, you know, I will go ahead and say, I think our hiring managers in the various countries have done a great job. And, you know, we involve people from HQ with the first hires seating new offices. And, you know, I'm on calls with people in the various offices. And yes, cultures will be different for sure. There's no question. Um, you know, the Netherlands is different than Canada is different than the States. At the end of the day, the people I'm on a call with, like, I honestly can't tell what country they're in because they just feel like fresh bookers to me. Yeah, excellent. And I know we all like to look at, uh, you know, all the positives and everything, but I think uh, I've learned most of my uh, things in life from, from my mistakes. So, you know, I'm assuming that uh, a few things have happened over the years that uh, you might be able to share with people and, you know, that they won't uh, replicate them. Well, you certainly got some of the public speaking missteps. Um, yeah, maybe in, in gorier detail I could do. Um, and I know that's a, an area of interest for a lot of a lot of your readers um, or listeners, sorry, um, or watchers. I don't know how to think about it these days. Um, okay, so yeah, mistakes along the way. You know, high level. I, 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 you know, I sort of believe, and this might sound trite, but there's, you know, there's no failure. There's only learning, right? And you know, yes, I had those public speaking engagements where I air quotes failed. But those were also, especially that second one, were also the places where I learned the most. So, so when I look back at FreshBooks, I don't have a lot of hand wringing, you know, regrets around how we did things. I actually, I think by and large, we made really good decisions along the way. Um, so, uh, so that's just high level. That's true. I, I have made countless mistakes, however, with like how I manage, motivate people, um, you know, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. For years, on a personal note, I found questions really hard to respond to. And this is, I think, maybe common among founders. Like you do Q&A, you give a talk and you do Q&A and, you know, people, and some of it's like the startup-y people that we hired that are uh, a little more aggressive and things like that. Um, or, but, but I, I found I, I would often react and not like yell at somebody or something like that, but I would find I would react and be defensive in Q&A at all company meetings and stuff like this. And it was, I, and I don't know why, um, I think it was because I was just in a state of constant stress for, for so many years. And I, you know, just wasn't unwound enough to just be like, oh, I, I see the nature of your question. Uh, I, I don't know if I had it role modeled well enough for me for how to respond to that stuff. And so now I'm happy to take a, a challenging question and, you know, it doesn't throw me off or make me feel like I need to go ahead and, and respond and defend what we've done and why we've done it. But I think, I think that's a tough journey along the way for people. And uh, so much of it is just you know, getting to a place where you're, you're comfortable in your own skin and you know, the people are coming from a good place. And as a leader, you just have a job to have everybody get on the same page. And when you get questions like that, it's, it's almost better to take it from the place of it's my failure that they don't understand versus, hey, why is this person, you know, challenging or contesting? 
Uh, and so it's, uh, it, you know, anyway, so that was a bit of a journey for me. And as someone who'd never worked in a company and never had any role models really around leadership, um, it was hard to understand what the target state was and how to get there. But, um, you know, over the years, certainly, certainly, I guess, grew up in front of, you know, a, an audience of <laughs> employees and tried to find a better way to do this stuff ongoingly. Very good. And like now in this kind of funny times, you know, liaising with uh, your staff online, is it something that you find it's worked out better and that, hey, do we really need all these people in the office and some could be working from home? Or do you feel, no, I prefer to have our team together and you know, the camaraderie together? I think it's some from column A and some from column B. For, for me, uh, you know, I feel like people, the pendulum just kind of swings and there was all this talk around, oh, remote, remote's great and all the rest of it. I, I, I personally believe relationships are really important and, you know, connection to your work and all these kinds of things. And I, I think you only get so much of that when you are remote. I, I also believe early in people's career, they have an even greater need to be in an office and kind of learn because they see people doing stuff uh, or they can collaborate, you know, or pull someone aside in, in a zoom world, you just don't have meetings. I, I think, I think zoom's better. The, the further along you are in your career, the easy it is to live in this all remote world. That's, that's my, my two cents. And so, so uh, for these reasons and more, it is my belief that when we go back, it's not going to be all remote. It's not going to be all office. It's going to be, there's going to be a third of people in the office every day, a third of people who are in the office three days in an office three days a week, and probably a third of people who want to be remote all the time. And in those cases, we're going to make sure that hey, there are a certain number of events you have to you have to attend to. Like we're going to have some all company meetings that you're going to have to get on a plane and, and go to if you're going to be remote. And we're going to have you know some department level meetings in your local office that you have to go to because even the world's best remote working companies know that relationships are important and they're struggling also during the pandemic because we just can't get together. So, so I, yeah, anyways, that's, that's my take on it. Um, as, as for me personally, connecting people, is it better? Like, no, I, I, as a leader, you miss a lot of, you know, hallway conversations. And, you know, when you speak to, you know, 500 people on zoom, it's really hard to read the room. Right. You're kind of, you know, as I call it, talking into the void. And if you're live, you can you can feel the energy changing based on something you said or something that didn't come across as clearly. And you can go ahead and clarify that uh, when you're just talking into the void. It's like, oh, I hope I hope people are listening. <laughs> you know, they could be like watching YouTube or something like that, uh, <laughs> which I'm sure they're not. But you, you just have no idea. There's no there's no ability to read things. So that's 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 not much fun as a, a leader, and I, I think it um, over time. I think it it starts to keep people feeling less connected to each other and to the companies they work with and for. Um, then, then I think is a really good thing long term. Okay, very good. You're you know obviously constantly promoting for the last twenty years, kind of getting into social media because one for people that are listening, whether they're coaches, public speakers or whatever, it's all about promoting yourself. You know, it's not a case of, you know, you turn on your website and they come running to you. You know, that's not how it is. So just wondering, you know, what what you've learned from the different things. To me, I'm getting demented at the moment because there's like 20 different platforms and there's different people like to be on different ones, whether it's WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, 
And just what's your thoughts on that, what you've learned from that over the years? It's really interesting. We, we used a lot of social media to promote the company and get the word out in, uh, let's call it 2006 through uh, you know 2014, something like that. I feel like I personally have been more internally focused for the last few years, just operationally and such, and been less involved in social media and kind of you know, with the new rule change, a little more freed up to start, you know, being more of a public figure again and those kinds of things. So, so I am sort of looking forward to that as for, um, you know, all the platforms and these things, I, I think you need to figure out where your audience is. And depending on what your, your subject matter is, your area of expertise, there are just, you know, your people are probably more likely to be on one platform than another. Uh, and so, so think about, okay, where do I need to be present and what are the rules of the road in this, on this platform? And so maybe it's LinkedIn if you're looking to speak to you know, companies. I don't know, but they will probably, if you're a speaker, go and check you out there. If you're trying to do corporate public speaking gigs, LinkedIn is probably a good place to be. LinkedIn plus maybe podcasts where, you know, you're, you're helping the world learn about something. So I think um, I think it's like, hey, where is your target audience? And then the other thing that's interesting is where, you know, you're probably speaking because you're an expert in something. Uh, and so you you may have another platform you want to be on where the people who are leading in that, that particular uh, domain are are congregated. And so, okay, if I get those two, I get the audience I want to reach and I want to hire me and I get the platform where the domain experts like myself are, maybe I have to cover off two platforms. So that'd be one way to think about it. Uh, other people would say, hey, every single thing you produce, promote it in all these platforms in like a really efficient mechanism and maybe get somebody to help you carve it up and, and push it to all those places. That can work too. Um, but I find most people are, they kind of bias to one, one medium, one channel, one platform or another. Excellent advice. And, and I uh, totally agree with you. Listen, Mike, it's been uh, fantastic. You've, you've shared uh, a lot of uh, great things that, uh, you know, people can take. So how can people get in contact with you? How can they find more about you? Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find um, online. I'm just at Mike McDermott on Twitter. That's probably the, the public place I go. I'm, I'm a little less good at getting back to people on things LinkedIn that, that can be found there. So Twitter is probably the best place to reach me. And then if you want to learn more about me or the company, please do check out freshbooks.com. And if you don't, you know, if you're still using Word and Excel to run your business or a piece of accounting software that is not... Uh, doesn't feel right for you, please uh, go ahead and give us a, a try at freshbooks.com. You can get going with a free trial if that's interesting. Yeah, brilliant. And to be honest with you, when I looked at it, it's very competitive prices. I was actually shocked at it. I was saying, no, this is excellent. So yeah, I definitely encourage people to check you out and I'll have all the links in the description below. So thank you very much, Mike. Thanks, Ray. So that's all for the Speaking Podcast. You'll find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. Until next week, take care. Thank you.